This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter. This is Ben Sears at Ben Sears on Letterboxd. And this is ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, where a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You can find more of our work at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also like us on Facebook and join the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. And uh, you can also support us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Obsessive Viewer. At the minimum rate of $1 per month, you get access to exclusive RSS to an exclusive RSS feed with content recorded specifically for Patreon supporters. And uh, if you pledge $5 or more, you get access to commentary tracks that um, I record whenever I get the chance to. I just recorded a commentary track for Pet Cemetery, the 2019 remake, and a couple of weeks ago I recorded a commentary track for Superbad. So that's at the $5 level on patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, and at the $10 level you get all of that plus access to unreleased and early access to uh, upcoming released episodes of all three podcasts at Obsessive Viewer, Anthology, and Tower Junkies. So, again, that's patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And, yeah, so I'm your aforementioned host, Matt Hurt, and with me today is recurring co-host and contributing reviewer for obsessiveviewer.com, Ben Sears. How's it going, Ben? Hey, good. How's it going? Pretty, pretty good. Um, You might say, given uh, your situation with um, buying an appliance... We're we're all pretty chill. No, that doesn't mm. really work that much. Um, Subscribe to Patreon and you'll understand that. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so Ben, how we didn't really touch on this that much in the Patreon thing, but how's twenty twenty one been for you um, in terms of movie watching and stuff? And do you do you set out goals for yourself with um, movies in the new year? Uh, I had not in the past. Um, I didn't last year. Uh, no. Um, and I honestly, I didn't really think of it too much this year until I got an idea. I think on, I don't know, it must've been the first or the second or something. I was trying to figure out some kind of way. Cause I know you last year you did something fun. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, I kind of wanted to try and bookend it somehow. Uh, but I didn't really know how, so I came up with some kind of way. Um, and I'll get into this a little bit more later. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> nice. Um, so I bought the criterion box set of the Agnes Varda collection. That's right. So I, uh, my first movie of this year was the first movie that she ever directed. Oh, nice. So hopefully, uh, I mean, hopefully I'll finish it before the end of the year, but hopefully mm -hmm. my last movie of the year will be the last one that she ever directed. Oh man. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. I like, I kind of did something similar with my first movie this year and hopefully my last movie this year. So what I, I, 
because uh, well, you guys will have heard this on the on the year in review episode, so I'll save that for what my first and last of last year was. But my first movie of this year was Super Bad, which I mentioned I recorded a commentary track for it for Patreon. But it's also my number twenty five favorite movie of all time. Okay, on my top twenty five all time favorite movies list, and so my goal is to watch all 25 of those on that list and record commentary tracks for each one and put them on Patreon at the $5 level and everything. So theoretically, I would want my first movie to be super bad and my last movie of 2021 to be my all-time favorite movie, which is uh, Seven Samurai. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and that'll be a super fun three and a half hour commentary track <laughs> that I'll record me uh, fucking on. at that point, 35 year old <laughs> white guy in Indianapolis talking about a Japanese period movie <laughs> on New Year's Eve on New Year's Eve, whenever it is. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, on that note, I don't mm. know if you had anything else to uh, get to. Uh, no, right I'm all set, but you had okay. you brought something. Yes. And I'm nervous. I have something for you. Oh, nice. Um, fortunately, this uh, <laughs> we didn't record anything around Christmas because it didn't arrive before then. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Um, also, I was dying of COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably best to hold yeah. off on that. Um, so, you got me the uh, one of the... Um, one of the Roger Ebert books. Yes, a while ago, and I appreciate it. So okay. thank you. Um, this doesn't really have anything to do with that. Oh, but okay. I'll just hand it to you, and you <clears throat> can describe it. Okay, it's, it's nothing special. It's just something from the Capitol. Just a little souvenir. Okay. Just something from the Capitol. I I tried to get something from Pelosi's office, but you <laughs> nice. know that was everyone was already there, so. I had to settle for someone else's. Oh, this is awesome! <laughs> it's the is is it the? Is, okay, yes, it's the script for Ex Machina. Yes, like I've seen these uh, advertised. Like A two four has like the books of like all the oh, fuck. This is oh, thanks, dude. <laughs> this is so nice. Sure. Oh, that's awesome! And Ex Machina just happens to be my number. Um, <laughs> um eighteen. 19 20 no i don't know um uh stalling 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 this is so nice thank you so much sure um where is my list okay all-time favorite movies x machina is my number 22 okay <laughs> So nice. Maybe I, for the commentary track I do for that, I'll just read the, read the script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, nice. I I had I had also seen those advertised, mm -hmm. and um, I thought that I had remembered that it was. I know I know that you liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't get it because it was on That's your awesome. list, though. Nice. Um, but I mean, the the only other ones that they have are. The Witch, mm. um, Moonlight, and I think there might be one more, but I don't remember what. I want to say Midsummer. Um, I think maybe I don't know, but I yeah. I'm sure that you like those other ones, but I didn't. Oh, yeah. 
don't know but, how much you more you like them uh, compared to that. So I figured that would be the best. Definitely, best bet. yes, absolutely. And it's funny because we talked about devs <coughs> on the podcast last yes. year, and so this is this is nice. This is so nice. Thank oh, you. hereditary. Oh, hereditary. hereditary. Yeah. Um. So, I uh, a twenty four. If you're listening, if you come out with one <laughs> for. Uh, I don't know. The last black man, San Francisco, or nice. uh, the lighthouse. Even I'll, oh, I'll for cool. sure be on board for that. So nice. Enjoy. Well, thanks so much. This is so nice. I, I kind of leafed through it a little bit, and mm. it looks pretty cool. They've yeah, got some uh some still photos, and I think mm. there's some there's like commentary or, or essays. Yeah. Um. I'm trying to see who wrote some of these uh, essays here. Um, there might be a table of contents. There might be. I was just thinking that <laughs> as I was like leafing through. Um, okay, a bunch of people that I don't recognize the names. Um, <laughs> section one, screenplay by Alex Garland. Whoever that is, am I right? <laughs> um, section two, 24 frames. Not sure. I guess that's just art. Uh, section three, this is not a love story by Jack Halbert, uh, Halberstam. Section four, concept, concept art by Jock. And what is consciousness by Murray Shanahan. So this is awesome. I am definitely going to dig into this. I'm super excited. Thank you so nice. much. Yeah. Um, I didn't get you anything, um, <laughs> except the comfort of hoping that you do not catch COVID being in my apartment. Um, it's that's, fine. That's a priceless gift. Yes, yes. Um, please don't catch COVID because that would feel <laughs> fucking terrible. Um, yeah. So anyway, thank you. That's so nice. Sure. Yeah. God, I love that movie. <laughs> um, he is. It was just announced. I think he's going to be doing another, maybe another TV show. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. This is this is awesome. So, um, it's a feature film. Uh, his next project, Alex Garland, has set his next project, Men, with A24, and has tapped Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear to star. Okay. Um, Jesse Buckley, I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, sign um, me up. Yeah, so I'm super excited. Okay. So I, yeah, I know nothing about it. I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. Um, so today on the podcast, Ben, we are continuing... Our series on the uh, Roger Ebert's Great Movies list. Um, this is now our sixth episode, or seventh? yeah, I think so. Let me check. I think it's sixth, if my notes are correct. Um, it is yes, part six. Um, and today on the show, we're going to be discussing uh, Akira Kurosawa's 1961 Yojimbo, and. Jean-Pierre Melville's 1967 La Samurai. Um, so yeah, so do we have anything else to go over before we get into this I don't think so. It's been okay. kind of nice. quiet. Nice. Yeah. News-wise, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't watched that Locked Down movie, have you? No, I plan on it. Okay. Uh, it sounds interesting, even though... From the reviews I've seen, it's been kind of mediocre to good-ish. Mm -hmm. So I'll watch it at some point. Yeah. 
We'll we'll report back at some point on that. So, <clears throat> have you? Uh, did you watch uh, Wonder Woman? 1984? I, I didn't, and I just remembered that it's only on HBO Max for like another seven days or something. Yeah. So I'm going to have to. I I just I, I just had no motivation to watch it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, Pedro Pascal is fun as hell. Nice. Um, Chris Pine is dreamy, mm-hmm. but beyond <laughs> that, eh, it's okay. okay. Did you, uh, oh, we can briefly talk about this and then go into the episode, but, um, I don't think we've talked about this on the podcast yet. The HBO Max theater, um, HBO Max release, the Warner, uh, Warner Brothers or whatever it was. How, yeah. how did you feel about that? We talked about it. Did yeah. we? Yeah. Oh, I shit. think, okay. I think if I remember right, the last episode that we recorded, the news was announced like that day. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, you know, hmm. one thing I, I listened to another podcast, so this is not my original thought, okay. unfortunately, but I hadn't realized this. Uh, so Warner brothers is owned by AT&T, which hmm. is, you know, a streaming cell phone company. Mm-hmm. And so they're, not really their main motivation in this, but you can see a primary motivation oh. was to get you to, you know, be on your phone more and use more. Wow. And use more of your shit. So huh. I don't know. It's maybe wow. that's a little cynical way of looking at mm. it, but um, it's just. Well, after yeah. all, the 5G towers did cause COVID. So yeah, there's that. Yeah. So they <laughs> are pure evil. Yes. Uh wow, that's really yeah. I I never thought of that angle. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um. Uh, in other news, uh, CBS All Access is officially going to be rebranded as uh, Paramount Plus. Um, on March fourth, <laughs> and yeah, I guess it's. I haven't read up too much on it, but basically, instead of CBS All Access, it's going to be Paramount Plus, which is going to have all of CBS All Access plus, I guess. Paramount's like library of films and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. It should be interesting. It's kind of like an HBO Max kind of thing. Um, I have a vested interest in it because I really want them to announce whether or not Twilight Zone is getting a third season. Um, <laughs> because I'm kind of dying out here. So we'll we'll see. So do you have any thoughts on that, or shall we move on? Not really. <laughs> um, I'm not subscribed. Okay. Um, so you're not watching The Stand. No, not yeah. yet. Um, I don't know if you have seen this news yet, but uh, today uh, the third season of Master of None was announced. Oh, oh, really? Mm-hmm. I did. Wow, I did not. I did not see that news. I did not see that coming. Yeah. Um. What? What are there any details? Um. Not really. Uh, I'm browsing through here. Uh, Master of None is set to finally return for a third season, this time set in London. Huh. Um, adds a some actress that I can't remember from uh, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Naomi Aki? I don't sure. know. Sure. Um, 
Oh. Uh, and sorry, oh. and co-creator Alan Yang started quietly shooting season three last spring, but production was put on hold. Mm. So who knows when it'll come out? Uh, this article that I'm reading doesn't say any kind of a potential date, but uh, yeah, I'm excited. Me too. That is wow. That's really interesting. I um. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I, I love the first two seasons. Oh, I yeah. I think that they're fantastic. I need to rewatch those. Me too. Um, did you ever watch Love Life on HBO Max? No. Okay, it's kind of a... I wouldn't say it's a similar concept. It's basically... the It was renewed for a season two, um, but it's an anthology format. So the first season is Anna Kendrick. Mm-hmm. Um, like, basically every episode is her in a relationship and time lapse and everything. Um, it's, it's really good. I need to finish that season actually. Okay. But season two is going to have the main character be played by, uh, the guy from, um, uh, Cheaty from The Good Place. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Um, William Jackson yeah. Harper. Yes. Yes. Uh, which I'm excited for that. Okay. Yep. Um, so yeah, so we'll report back whenever that stuff happens. Um, so shall we move on to the Ebert's Great Movies list? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So here is the bumper that we play for the Ebert's Great Movies No list. name is more synonymous with film criticism than Roger Ebert's. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and children. People say the film critics have too much power. For those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. We can help a movie. We can help a movie. By sharing our enthusiasm, we can't necessarily hurt a movie that is destined to be a big hit anyway. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. And then, Roger Ebert gets up. I uh, find very offensive and condescending about your statement. There's nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? Let us all unite! And just to read the quote from Roger Ebert himself, um, attributed to the Ebert's Great Movies list kind of idea is, quote, one of, give, one of the gifts a movie lover can give another is the title of a wonderful film they have not yet discovered. Here are more than 300 reconsiderations and appreciations of movies from the distant past to the recent past, all of movies that I consider worthy of being called great. All right, so we, here we are with part six of our Ebert's Great Movies List uh, review series on The Obsessive Viewer. And the way that we do this is that we obviously pick two movies. One of us picks each – we each pick one movie, and then we discuss both of them in the episode. So we do them chronologically from release date. So the first one we're going to talk about tonight is Yojimbo from 1961, directed by the incomparable Akira Kurosawa. And, uh, yeah, I'll do the plot summary for Yojimbo. So the plot summary for Yojimbo is a crafty ronin comes to a town divided by two criminal gangs and decides to play them against each other to free the town. Uh, Yojimbo stars Toshiro Mifune and, uh, several other actors, including Tatsuyo, uh, I'm sorry, Tatsuya Nakadal, no wait, Nakadai, um, I'm butchering. I'm gonna butcher all these. I'm sorry, but uh, but and also uh, Takashi Shimura makes an appearance as well. I like him a lot. So anyway, <clears throat> came out in 1961. 
highly influential. Also, it's it's an interesting movie because it is it is clearly it's it's Akira Kurosawa who his favorite filmmaker was John Ford. It's Kurosawa really digging into the western genre in in a way that I don't think he really did until that point. Mm-hmm. And it's him doing that while also um basically spawning and influencing the spaghetti western and the man with no name trilogy. Uh-huh. Um which I believe there was a lawsuit because they didn't when they made a fistful of dollars which is a blatant remake of Yojimbo <laughs> like it, it there's no way it's not. Um I guess they didn't get permission and there was a lawsuit involved hmm. so I don't know the specifics but but yeah, so anyway, um, I picked this movie for Ben and I to watch. I picked it because Kurosawa is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, and Yojimbo is uh, is a fantastic kind of action uh, samurai film. So, Ben, how did you feel about Yojimbo? How did you feel going into it? And unless I'm mistaken, is this your first Kurosawa? You are not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. Uh, first and only yeah, so far as of this recording. Um, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, yeah, uh, I didn't really know what to expect other than, uh, samurais and badass shit. Nice. Um, and I was not let down. So, uh, yeah, it's, I, I was really, uh, taken aback by it. Um, did not know, um, the Western influences or the Western mm-hmm. kind of style. Um, so that, that was a really, uh, surprising, really welcome, uh, turn of events, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Sweet. Um, so it's funny. I, so I, it's not my favorite Kurosawa movie. Okay. Um, it's a lot of people's favorite Kurosawa movie. But it is, I mean, it, and it's up there for me. Like he, I have just such a special, uh, by the way, we'll, we'll do non-spoiler and spoiler. Okay. <laughs> but I have a very kind of, I don't know, I, a, a precious connection with Kurosawa movies. Cause those are the movies that I watched when I was trying really hard to cultivate, uh, my own taste in film. And, and like, it was my introduction to like the criterion collection and sure the robust special features. <clears throat> like I remember buying, I remember going when I was in high school to, I want to say it was Suncoast video <laughs> and like seeking out the criterion collection edition of any Kurosawa movie I could find. And I remember, I think, I think I, I I don't know if I bought this there, but I ended up buying Throne of Blood, which is his 1957 um, Macbeth in feudal Japan story, um, which is my number 23 on my top 25, I think. Hmm. So uh, I bought that, and I remember like taking the insert to school so I could read the essays while I was not paying attention to school. <laughs> um, but anyway, Yojimbo is... I. It's funny because I, I hold in such high regard, and at some point I'll uh, I'll pick it for this for this project, but it'll be down the road, I think. I hold in to such a high degree uh, Seven Samurai, uh-huh. and one of the central figures of that movie. It's it's obviously an ensemble being Seven Samurai, but the kind of 
Toshiro Mifune does a fantastic job playing this reluctant hero, but also this kind of goofy, like wild card character for the group. And to, to know that performance and then see his performance in Yojimbo is this calm, quiet, calculating samurai that's playing these two factions off of each other. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's night and day, but it's also just, it shows just how much range he had as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, I really like that. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So what struck you most about this movie and like, what, what did you connect with and, and what didn't work for you, if anything? Uh, right off the bat, the thing that stuck, <clears throat> stood out to me the most was the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the soundtrack. I think it nice. rules. Um, I was not expecting that. Uh, I was not expecting the music to sound like that. Really, nice. it's kind of this. I don't know how would you describe it. Like, it's, uh, not really jazz. Not really funk ish. Just yeah, almost out of place. But it still kind of fits. Uh, I don't know. It is. It's um, not really what you think of when you think of Western music, I right. guess. Um, but it 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 just really stood out to me mm-hmm. just right off the bat. I thought it ruled, um, and I was excited every time it came back. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> a lot of like drums and right uh, saxophone too. I think something like yeah. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. I might be wrong. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I I really liked the way that uh, Mifune um, just kind of the way like he's he's fucking with these people uh, <laughs> and he's doing it in just this, these really increasingly clever ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I was really tickled by that. Yeah. Um, this is a hundred percent my fault, but I watched this kind of late at night and okay. I, I didn't really doze off. Um, mm-hmm. but I, like my wife had to kind of shake me awake, uh, or, <laughs> make sure my eyes were open once or twice. Right. So I kind of, uh, I kind of missed some of the smaller like character details or just the way that the, the characters are related to each other or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that I really missed out on a whole lot, but, uh, I, I would like to watch it again just to, you know, have, uh, open eyes and, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, but uh to uh let's see. Um how to phrase this. Um <laughs> uh there are no like big reveals or anything, so right. you're, you're good. There. Right. Um I just it, yeah. it would have been a little bit nicer to have a better idea of like who is who and mm-hmm. how they relate to each other and yeah. Yeah, it can get kind of confusing, especially with those two factions, and mm-hmm. like, and that it's in black and white. And yeah, it's harder to distinguish them that way. Mm. But that's my, my ugly American side showing, <laughs> right? But I think what what works best with this movie is that, it, and it's something that I think Ebert touched on in his essay. Um, 
is that they're not it defies antagonism like it or it defies protagonist and antagonist like yeah the like sanjuro the the ronin is this guy that's just wandering in into a town mm-hmm. and like you said it's fucking with these two factions that are kind of they 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 are in control of the town and their feud is what's kind of like keeping the citizens and everything you know scared and and sheltered and everything yeah um but it's not like he's doing this out of a noble cause. It's not like he's like, well, I need to save this town or whatever. He's like, yeah, I need money and I need to <laughs> like, I'm I'll kill some people and I'll, I'll like make sure the coffin maker, uh, gets some good business. And right. I just I, want some money. I think, uh, Ebert says this, that there, there are no, there's no good side and no bad side. Yeah. They're all, it's just a town full of evil people. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that makes it a little bit easier to swallow and everything. Mm-hmm. There is an element to the movie which I I really appreciate. This is kind of um kind of an interesting I don't know if I'd say parallel, but it's an interesting running maybe not even running thing with Kurosawa because I'm I think I've seen like half of his movies total, but Oh, really? Yeah. Uh he did he made 30 movies and I really wanted to do like a review series of each one, but I don't know if I I don't know if I have the knowledge because <laughs> what I'll do is I'll watch a Kurosawa movie and I'll go on like Criterion Channel or on um, uh, the DVDs or Blu-rays I have and I'll listen to the commentary track and everything. And it's like they're talking about so like Japanese culture and stuff. And I'm like, right. swords <laughs> and uh, kimonos. Um, the... Yeah. Um- <clears throat> Ebert writes in his essay that there's a, an author, his name's Donald Ritchie, mm-hmm. who says that his writings on Kurosawa are uh, pretty much canon. Yeah. Um, and he is, or he wrote the book that I am reading about. Oh, really? So, um, nice. Yeah. Maybe once I'm done with this, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, definitely. I'll have to check that out too. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, oh, but the thing I was getting at was that. Um, Tetsuyo Nakadai. Um, he plays Unosuke, uh, the, the guy with a pistol. Mm-hmm. And he, it's interesting, like he and, uh, Mifune acted together in a lot of, in a lot of things. He also appears in the, uh, sequel, pseudo sequel to Yojimbo Sanjuro as a different character. Right. But, I don't know. This is, this is not an interesting point to make. <laughs> Um, he plays the lead character in the Sword of Doom, where in the Sword of Doom he's this character that's like he's like corrupted by power. Like he has like he's an incredible sword fighter, and he's just like it's he's evil and everything. Um, but it's an interesting movie because it's like it was originally envisioned as a trilogy, but they only made the first one, and the ending is kind of just bonkers, crazy, and doesn't mm-hmm. really compute that or doesn't really connect that well. But anyway. Toshiro Mifune makes an appearance in that movie as well. And it's just interesting that they have wor- had worked together um, here and there as well. So, okay. Nice. Yeah. But the thing that I kind of really appreciate about that character in that arc is that he has the pistol, which it seems to be kind of an interesting running thing. Maybe not running thing, but like in Seven Samurai, um, the bandits have a, have a gun or have like three guns. And like it's... It's shown as like, okay, this is 
it's used to to show like the changing of the guard essentially okay like samurai life like i don't know much about the history or anything so i apologize if i'm going to butcher this but at this time in the in the uh uh the edu period i think um, I think that's what it's called, like feudal Japan, like there were civil wars that broke mm-hmm. out and the samurai after the civil wars were done and everything. Yeah. Uh, the samurai kind of became guns for hire, swords for hire. Yeah. And, uh, it's just interesting to see a recursion of like in both seven samurai and Yojimbo of the presence of a gun in terms of like it being just in the waning days of the kind of samurai era of japan so Mm -hmm. that's my 34 year old white guy in indianapolis take (laughs) on uh the recursion of pistols and guns in kurosawa's uh period films well said thank you thank you um yeah it it does it is kind of uh an interesting like backdrop it's this this new guy with this new technology coming in and um not necessarily like taking away the old way of life, but, you know, exerting his dominance Mm -hmm. over these other people just because he has this little pistol. Yeah. Thinking he's hot shit, essentially. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, That's something I really appreciate about, and I have an anecdote about the ending, so I'll save that for spoilers, but... Um, yeah, but every time I rewatch this movie, I just think uh, I'm, I'm taken by the cleverness of it. Um... Sanjuro, just the way that he works these two factions together. It's just a very cleverly told story. Yeah. And like you said, the um the kind of the change ups and and the way that it's the way that he does these things with, like in different ways is just really, really cool. Like when he saves I don't know if this is a spoiler, but when he when he goes into the into the place with the six guards like mm-hmm. that scene yeah. is just it's just so cool. It's right. just it's really cool. So Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um yeah, and he does it in a way that I feel like a lesser filmmaker would make him feel like an asshole, you <laughs> yeah. know. Uh just deliberately messing with this this town that he just kind of wanders into mm-hmm. on a whim. Uh, and (laughs) I mean, yes, all the other people are assholes themselves, but Mm. this guy just comes in and just starts messing around with them just for no reason. Um, and, but, but yeah, he, he is a a character that you want to root for Mm. and that you, uh, want to see him, uh, not necessarily help out the town but just find a way to survive i guess yeah you know it's really it's really fun to watch it play out like this is this isn't uh, so of the two movies of yojimbo and sanjuro the sequel that came out like a year later um sanjuro is more a comedy where he takes a young samurai under his wing to an extent okay um and it, it's a very different tone, but you see some of that in some of his interactions here. It's like it's there's some comedic elements in this, but it's mostly just him being conniving and and uh, playing playing these two sides against each other, which again I think is just really clever and really satisfying to me. Yeah. Um. 
how'd you feel about the the filmmaking and everything? Did anything catch your eye about Kurosawa's style? Since this is your first time watching a movie of his, um, it was what's the best word? Um, I don't want to say unremarkable, oh, but I, you know, it wasn't like flashy or showy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it looked great. Um, it just uh, there wasn't. I don't know. He wasn't just trying to be showy or dramatic or trying to, you know, there weren't any shots that didn't make sense. Mm. Um, so I, I appreciated that and just the way that it was structured. Um, uh, just very uh, efficient and very, uh, it progressed, uh, progressed nicely. The pacing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Um, it's interesting because there are there are a lot of like trademarks of Kurosawa's that are evident okay. in the movie. Um, so uh, a famous anecdote of this is that, like I said, he he was a um, he was a huge fan of John Ford, right? And I guess there was an anecdote where so like a, a recurring kind of visual motif in his movies is that. Rain plays a big part in a, in a lot of his films, hmm. and usually it signals like impending action or or drama to unfold. And it's like it's like buckets of rain. It's like it's like a, it's very aggressive. Um, and so it's something that's in most of his movies. And it's funny because he, uh, I guess the story goes that when he met John Ford again, like his hero. Um, John Ford said like, wow, you really, I think it was John Ford. He said, uh, wow, you really like rain in your movies, don't you? And then he's like, you've watched my movies. <laughs> um, nice. So yeah, but there's that. And then also, um, sc- screen wipes, um, to change scenes, which okay. I think was the direct influence of, on George Lucas with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And um, just the way that he, and this is something that, that has struck struck me so much um, since I've watched his movies more often in the last couple of years, but just the way that he composes his shots. So like there are scenes where, where Sanjuro is in the kind of town uh, in the street and members of the of of the faction that he is like at that time interacting with they come out to kind of try to threaten him i think or i can't remember the context of this particular scene that i'm thinking of but it's just this really really amazing way that kurosawa had such an eye for filling a frame and Mm -hmm. this is very evident in seven samurai and and here which this is really special because this is like this is a widescreen thing, so like yeah. he has more room. But Seven Samurai was like whatever, mm-hmm. uh, four by three, I think. But um, but it's just really cool. This scene that I'm that I'm thinking of is like these people, these these members of this clan that that are like uh, this faction that that he's going up against or he's interacting with. They're running out of the building, but it's like they're running in single file lines. Yeah, and it's just it's just so vibrant and the visual aspect of it is just really cool because they just line up behind each other um in rows and mm-hmm. it's just like it's just so many people and so like in this somewhat tight frame it's just it's really cool i just i i really admire just his the way that he composes his shots because <laughs> it's it's amazing 
this is a stupid thing that it reminded me of, but it reminded me that moment that you're talking about reminded me of uh West side story. Like <laughs> I was, okay. I was really disappointed that they didn't all just start snapping and nice. jumping around <laughs> and dancing. Oh, I love it. Oh, that's great. I love it. <laughs> I am, by the way, also very disappointed that nobody at any point yells out, yo, Jimbo. <laughs> I, that that uh, was a missed opportunity. I am not going to lie. If <laughs> I, I have had this thought that if I ever like write a script or anything, uh-huh. I would like put something like that into the script um, <laughs> as an homage. Um, but yeah. So anyway. Um, copyright obsessive here, but, um, uh, yeah. So should we go into kind of spoilers? We can go in kind of a brief spoiler. Cause I don't know how much more I have to talk about it, but any parting non-spoiler thoughts before we go into spoilers for Yo Jimbo? Um, so should I, how soon after this should I watch Sanjuro? Um, I would say, I would say immediately, like it's not as good. Um, okay. But I think that if you like the tone, even though it's slightly a different tone, but it's kind of the same. Um, the thing that I, the thing about Yojimbo compared to most of Kurosawa's other like feudal Japan era movies mm-hmm. is that Yojimbo is, for lack of a better word, it's more fun. Okay. <laughs> like there, there, like Seven Samurai is is a blast. Like I, I love it dearly. But you have like that. That's a sprawling epic of more than three and like three and a half hours long, and it's an ensemble. It has all these different moving pieces. So like, there's humor and there's fun to be had in it. But it's also in service of this greater narrative that is. It's literally like it's an epic. Right. And when you think about like Throne of Blood, that's like. I mean, that's some heavy-duty Shakespeare <laughs> in feudal Japan clothing. So that's insane with, like, Kaj- uh, Kagamusha and Ron. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say check out Sanjuro or actually maybe check out some of his others, other feudal Japan movies and then use Sanjuro as kind of a palate cleanser. Okay. Um, but I recommend uh all 30 of his movies because okay. <laughs> i i love him well that that reminds me because uh i mean there will be plenty more kurosawa movies on this list yes um i know obviously seven samurai mm-hmm. rashomon um i think ron is on in this um i th- think so Either that or Kagamusha. Right. Or both. Um, uh, I'm not seeing Kagamusha. Um, Ikiru, did he direct Ikiru? Yes, he did. And yeah. Ron is on the list. Okay. Uh, there's uh, Rashomon, Redbeard, Ron, Ikiru. Um, Redbeard, that's one of his? Yes. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, that was the last collaboration between Kurosawa and Mifune. Interesting. Yes. Okay. By the way, if you liked uh, Toshiro Mifune in this, I recommend the um, documentary Mifune, The Last, I think The Last Samurai. Okay. Um, It's all about his career and everything. It's It's really cool. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and do you, 
intend on following up and watching more Kurosawa. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. absolutely. Nice. Um, after after Sanjuro, I don't know what I will watch after that. I've been wanting to watch Rashomon for a while. Mm. Um, so maybe that, but I don't know. Nice. I like Rashomon a lot. Okay. That would be. I'll just throw this out there. Maybe not for the next time, but maybe for the time after that. I think it would be a fun pairing to do Rashomon and 12 Angry Men. Okay. Just saying. I think that would be kind of cool. Okay. Um, Yeah. So, shall we go into probably a brief spoiler of Yojimbo? Sure. All and right. I guess... Uh, oh, yes. Oh, no, I, <laughs> oh I was, okay. was going to say, I spoiler is kind of... Uh, being a little generous. Yeah. I mean, this is, I guess it's now a 50-year-old movie this that year. That is true. Uh, that is so. true. And really, the only anecdote I have about it is just about the gun. Okay. And like, yeah, I don't know. But before we get into a spoiler discussion, uh, Ben, thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up. Nice. And would you put it on a list of your great movies? Yeah. Nice. Um... I think, obviously, my answer is pretty obvious. Uh, yes to both. Thumbs up and uh, on my list. So, yeah. I I did. Uh, I don't know if this bears mentioning at all, mm-hmm. but I did just kind of briefly briefly search for uh, the uh, fistful of dollars that this, uh, I guess, inspired. And uh, right. Ebert decided to put this one on there as opposed to fistful of dollars. So. Yeah. Um, I was, I was kind of bummed cause I wanted to watch Fistful of Dollars. Like I wanted to pitch that for the next one. Right. But like, I was surprised it wasn't on it. Like the good, the bad and the ugly is, but okay. not a Fistful of Dollars. So yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen it. So I, oh, I don't know if I can say hmm. which one is better or you know, mm-hmm. any of that. Anyway. Nice. Um, yeah. So we'll go into a brief spoiler for you, Jimbo, and then. Yeah, then we'll move on to the Samurai. Uh, so check the show notes if you want timestamps. But uh, yeah, um, we're going to go into spoilers for Yojimbo. Okay, spoilers on for Yojimbo. I do have just an anecdote from Ebert's essay, if you okay. don't mind indulging me for a moment. Um, by the way, do you have an, a hard out? No. Okay. Um, I do need to uh, stop and check the lottery results at 11 o'clock to make oh. sure that I won. Really? My $800 million. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, no, no, okay. I'm... <laughs> nice. We can just have that on in the background if necessary. Nice. I like it. Um, okay, so Yojimbo spoilers. And I do have just an excerpt from Ebert's um, essay that I want to share, and then we can kind of talk about that a little bit. It's about the gun and about uh, Unasuki um, and his interaction with uh, Sanjiro at the end of the movie. So Ebert says, quote, without revealing precisely what happens between them, let me ask you to consider the moment when Unosuke aims his pistol at Sanjiro. It may be loaded. It may not be. Sanjiro cannot be absolutely sure. He is free to move away or to disarm Unosuke, but instead he sits perfectly motionless, prepared to accept whatever comes. This, it strikes me, is the act of a samurai aware that his time has passed and accepting with perfect equanimity whatever the new age has to offer. Hmm. And it's interesting because I had a different read on that. Because um, he, I think he's, and it's it's interesting because when we talk about the samurai, I'll call back to this, I think. Yeah. But 
he I feel like he's kind of implying this the concept of and I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to do like one of the two versions of it uh because I feel like an idiot if I mispronounce the other one because of reasons but uh Supuko um or Harakiri which I've heard pronounced Harry Carey. Um <laughs> And I don't know if that's like accurate or whatever, but it's like the act of killing yourself. Um, oh yeah, in disgrace okay. or whatever. Which I don't think he's necessarily Ebert's necessarily implying that here, but it's something that's very samurai. Um, mm-hmm. So let me ask you, Ben, how did you feel about this kind of climactic scene between Sanjuro and Unosuke, and the way that Unosuke is so? like dependent on the pistol and, and his, his attitude toward it. How did you feel about how all that shook out? Um, yeah, I, I think it, it, uh, it made sense for the characters. Um, he just, he, he only has the gun and nothing else, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, he has no wits or it kind of reminds me of, um, I don't know, maybe the wire kind of like these young kids who oh, interesting. get the guns huh. and uh, think that they're hot shit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's probably uh, painting it with a broad brush, but mm-hmm. you know, um, nice. yeah, uh, huh. I, I was satisfied with the way it played out. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I liked it too. Um, this, mm-hmm. I like that the threat of the gun isn't necessarily like it's not painted as like, oh, this could be the downfall of Sanjuro or anything. It's like this is like I said before in the non-spoiler, it's like it's this artifact of a future time or artifact of where technology and and fighting is going essentially in protection Uh Um, while this is. I don't want to make this comparison or I don't want to make this statement, but whereas samurai with their swords, like it's a, it's a more civilized, uh, it's a more elegant weapon from a more civilized right. age. Um, cause of star Wars and they, uh, they say I see that, what you I did guess. there. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but no, it's, it's something that is just a different, it's, confronting the future the way that ebert says it and so i just wanted to bring it up i i I thought it was cool yeah um yeah i don't really have anything else for spoilers um any parting thoughts or shall we go on to la samurai no i uh i enjoy this i look forward to more kurosawa Nice. And your guidance. Yes. I was going to say I, I should uh, – maybe I'll try to recommend a movie for you. Not as part of this because I feel like like my – my um, uh, my um what's the word I'm looking for? My um impulse is to just make like – go through each <laughs> all Kurosawa. Kurosawa all yeah. Yeah. But I, I want to space it out a little bit. Okay. But I will say that if you – I would say I, I will say that if you have a hankering for more Kurosawa, um, watch Throne of Blood if you yeah. want a good period movie. But if you want one of his contemporary movies set like in post-war Japan, um, Stray Dog, okay, phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, 
And I don't believe it's on the Ebert's Great Movies list, but I really, mm. really highly recommend Stray Dog. Okay. I know you gave me Throne of Blood on I did. DVD. Mm. Uh, I don't believe Stray Dog was no, one of them, though. Stray Dog, unfortunately, was not, because they have not had a Blu-ray release okay. for that. But my eye has been... I don't know. I've been keeping an eye out for any Kurosawa Blu-rays. Yeah. So that'll do it for our review of Yojimbo. Shall we move on to 1967's La Samurai? Let's do it. All right. This movie goes through some pretty predictable paces about their forbidden love, but I was never really very interested in the characters in Blade Runner. I didn't find it convincing. Instead, what impressed me in this film were the special effects, the wonderful use of optical trickery to show me a gigantic imaginary Los Angeles, which in the vision of this movie has been turned into sort of a futuristic a Tokyo. performance, and Fargo is the best movie the Corn Brothers have ever made. A quirky, so, uh, Ben, would you mind, do you, do you have like the information up? Do you want to read the plot summary and tell us about what made you want to pick this movie for us to watch? Sure. Uh, Lay Samurai, uh, 1967, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. After professional hitman Jeff Costello is seen by witnesses, his efforts to provide himself an alibi drive him further into a corner. Yes. So I basically just picked this because I was just browsing through the list on Letterboxd one day and saw the little like thumbnail poster image for mm. it and was just really intrigued by it for some reason. It's not really like overly flashy or anything. It's just, mm. it just kind of looked cool and I had never heard of it. So I looked it up and it was available to stream and I just kind of watched it just at random one day and thought that it was really cool and uh I picked this just because I wanted to talk about it and Sweet. I don't know anyone else personally that has seen it so uh what better opportunity Nice and I'm glad that you picked it and if you remember last time like just the word samurai made me all excited <laughs> so that's why I uh picked Yojimbo because I was like, oh, okay, something like La Samurai has something to do with Samurai. Uh So maybe we'll do a double feature with Samurai movies. So that's why I picked Yojimbo. Okay. um, Yeah. I uh, Do you you mind if I give my kind of overall, my brief thoughts? Go ahead. Non-spoiler? Yeah, Um, go ahead. I I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. I think of the two, I liked uh, Yojimbo better, um, which is, I mean, kind of a a given, given my proclivities and my, my tastes and everything, um, and my history with Yojimbo. But the Samurai, I was really pretty taken with as a procedure kind of, kind of, and a methodology type of movie. Uh huh. So I, this, it's something that I didn't really connect with until I kind of thought about it more after I watched it. Um, while, uh, while I was trying to fall asleep, but just could not fall asleep. <laughs> but I kept, I had this like nagging feeling in the back of my head that it just reminded me something like the tone of it, the style of it reminded me so much of something. And I kind of pinpointed it to like this, (laughs) the entire movie kind of felt a little bit to me, like it reminded me of the, um, Oh God, what's uh, the, is it the wolf uh, scene? Harvey Keitel's uh, character in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Like, 
the just the way that and and I'm sure Tarantino like I, I read this as a highly influential film, obviously, but like I could see like the Tarantino uh Tarantino's um influence from Le Samurai because he is so focused on procedure and on yeah. methodology and everything and really showing like the pieces and everything. And Le Samurai that's kind of all not all it is, but it's a it's a good portion like of what the, it is. The middle third of it pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Like ha- like going through the motions of actually showing like the detectives like asking individual um uh um witnesses and then excusing them into his office like just that kind of i don't want to say slow burn but that kind of just very slow moving i guess yeah. would be the word very detailed detail oriented thing mm-hmm. and it's and what struck me about it was that it wasn't used as necessarily as suspense like when we get big jumps in the plot or big, big moments of, uh, I don't want to give anything away, but like, there's a moment where, uh, where Jeff is meets with someone and we go through all of this, all of this preamble of him being tailed, him going through the subway and going through, like going, doing all of these things to get to this meeting. And then what happens at the meeting is by all accounts, a dramatic shift in the movie, but it is so quick and so sudden. It's like, it is a complete 180 from like the procedure and everything. And I, something about that just was really striking to me because it just uh-huh. felt like it, it really engrossed me with it. So I don't know, but yeah. yeah, I think to go back to your point about, uh, Tarantino, mm-hmm. uh, I think he probably took from this, you know, all the N words that are in this movie. <laughs> right. Um, uh, Probably a couple minutes late for that joke, but it was worth it. Um, yeah, I, um, I also, the whole, like both times that I have watched this movie, I just, I recognize all of the things that it does that I have seen in so many other movies since then. Um, you know, there's the, the secret garage that he goes to to get yeah. the, the license plates swapped mm-hmm. out. And this one, like, I'm sure there are better, uh, better examples of this, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I was just thinking of the transporter, the Jason Statham movie. Never saw it, but okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But just, just really any, any kind of like hitman with a code mm-hmm. kind of movie. This movie is kind of like the archetype of that. Um, you've got, you know, like I said, the, the garage, you've got the, I guess he doesn't even really have a code. He just Mm -hmm. has a way of doing things. Right. Um, you have the, the detective that is willing to bend the rules to Mm -hmm. try and get him. Um, and he's like hell bent on trying to pin this murder on him. Yeah. Um, you have the sexy woman who's pulled into this mm-hmm. who it's not really clear in this if she if they're like attracted to each other mm-hmm. or whatever but uh i'm i'm glad that it didn't go into that cuz it was right. uh you see that way too often yeah the kind of femme fatale but right. it it's it's understated to to a large degree in this movie, and I appreciate it for that. Yeah, you, the, or 
maybe not necessarily femme fatale, but mm. just someone who like falls in love with the hitman kind of guy. Just are you talking about his girlfriend alibi lady or uh, the pian the pianist? pianist. Okay, yeah. me too. Yeah, I, I guess I'll amend that and say potential femme fatale. Yes. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But just just all the all the other movies that have tried to do what this movie is doing, um, and for, and would I have liked to have seen? You know, I I feel like yes, it is very slow paced, uh, especially that middle third, mm-hmm. um. I feel like in an ideal world, maybe the, uh, the mob or whatever that he's, that hires him mm-hmm. could have been developed a little bit better. Sure. Um, but I, I'm still okay with it. Not, you know, as it is, uh, okay. not having been developed a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I think that it's just such a cool, uh, just stylish, little not necessarily action movie not even necessarily a thriller but right. um just uh just like the prototype of all of these movies to come later yeah like both of like hitman movies and even to to a smaller extent like just spy espionage movies and stuff. maybe maybe like uh the Jason Bourne movies i guess yeah i could see that uh like <laughs> This Jason Bourne is this on steroids, um, <laughs> right? But like you know, there's there's the the sequence where he tries to lose him in the subway. You mm-hmm. know, how many times have you seen that over the years? Right. Um, and yeah, uh, I just thought it was really cool. Nice. Um, what made you watch it the first time? Was it just for this or no just for random okay I just gotcha i i just kind of pulled it out of nowhere nice and i saw that it was available to stream so sweet yeah awesome i am yeah <laughs> i realize i don't i i don't have a movie picked for next time okay but i do want to mention there's something i want to talk about in spoilers um so but I, I don't know if there's an, enough really to talk about in spoilers or anything, but there's something I want to talk about, basically. So, overall thoughts before we get into spoilers. Um, and other kind of piecing together things that I can't really remember. But um, uh, I, I liked it. I, I liked it a lot. Uh, like I said, it's I didn't like it as much as Yojimbo, but I did like the overall aesthetic and the kind of... The, the kind of way that it builds, it, it builds its tension in a unique way. And I wouldn't even necessarily say tension per se, but yeah. the way it, it builds its escalation and builds its, its plot around this, I don't want to say unassuming, but he's, he's this kind of suave guy who is just very cool, calm, collected. And you might construe that as being kind of a, a um, a not lesser, but like a a lower type of like a, not being very active, uh, performance wise. Uh-huh. But I feel like there's a lot of subtext to him in the kind of 
Quiet Calm that is obviously very influential in a, a, a bunch of movies that have come in the wake of this. Yeah. Um, and to your point about reminding you of other, of like, of like modern day movies and everything, um, when he has to, uh, dress his injury, um, I just got such a, like, it, it reminded me that I really need to watch the John Wick movies. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I watched <laughs> yeah, the first I, one and liked it, but yeah. I, uh, I was just, uh, about to say that. Yeah. He's, he is kind of John Wick esque. Um, basically Lejean, Lejean Wick. Yeah. Lejeff Wick. Lejeff Wick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I really liked it. I really liked it. Have you seen any of, uh, Melville's other movies? I have not. Um, okay. he does have one other movie on this list. It's oh, called nice. Bob the Gambler. Oh. Um, and I tried watching it like last week, I think, hmm. but I, I think I was just too tired oh, and, yeah. um, just, I, I didn't give him my full attention. So gotcha. I, I do plan on watching it. He's got a couple movies on Canopy. Oh, okay. Um, other than <laughs> that, I don't, I don't think he has any other that are streaming elsewhere. So, uh, he just based on this, though, I, I'm excited to watch more of his stuff. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm very curious about, about it. So, uh, would that be a thumbs up from you? Yes. Uh, okay. be, before we go into it, though. Oh, yes. Um, should, should we talk about, the opening frame, I guess. The the very opening of this. Yes. You, Are you referring to the text or yes, or no. the camera work of the? Yeah, just just the way that that yeah. shot is framed and how it progresses and everything. Um. Yeah, because it's it's kind of a weird kind of ex uh, experimental kind of. Thing thing that we don't see really at all anywhere else in the movie. Yeah. Um, now that you said that, it kind of threw me for a loop a little bit. Um, what did you think of it? <laughs> um, I just, like, the first time that I saw it, I was really impressed with it, just mm-hmm. because, uh, like, for people that haven't seen it recently, it's just the inside of Jeff's apartment, and he's got these two giant windows, um, and he is laying on the bed, and he starts smoking, and it's kind of ingenious how Melville does this, how he, like, you don't even notice him there at first, you know? Hmm. And yeah. even the second time that I watched this, I knew that he was there and maybe I had just forgotten exactly where he is, mm-hmm. but he, like, even the second time I was kind of surprised when oh. he finally moves and, uh, and you see him. And it's just a really, I just was really impressed with how kind of emblematic it is of the rest of the movie. Like, he's just, he's this guy who's just lying there and wait and just trying to, stay in the shadows basically yeah that's a good point i didn't i i didn't pick up on that i didn't really connect with why like what that opening shot was but that's interesting i'll i'll have to uh think about that next time i watch it mm-hmm. that's interesting um 
Yeah, I don't really have anything to add. <laughs> uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, thumbs, thumbs up. up. Would it be I'll, on your great movies list? Yes, okay. I'll I'll definitely watch this again. Nice. Um, I don't know how soon, but yeah, I'll mm-hmm. I'll watch it again for sure. Let me too. I think. Um, I sorry. I was oh, I was at Barnes and Noble recently, mm-hmm. and I was just looking through their uh, Criterion section. Mm-hmm. And they had this on Blu-ray, and I briefly considered buying it, but it yeah. was like forty dollars or something Oof. outrageous. So yeah, maybe they'll do another sale at some point. Yeah, um, yeah. Oof. And I mean, you've got the Agnes Verde, Verde. Yep. Uh, set to go through anyway, so you know. And you can never have too much Criterion that, Blu-rays. That's actually true. Um, Don't tell that to my wife. As evidence from the top row of my <laughs> collection. Um, ish, yes. So, um, yeah, thumbs up for me. Um, I would put it on my top ten, or my, not my top ten, <laughs> but my great movies list, uh, theoretically so. Um, I do have something I want to talk about in spoilers for this, so I think we should go into spoilers. All right, well, we'll go into spoilers for Le Samurai, and uh, we might do a potpourri after this. Might not. We'll, we'll see. But check the show notes for the timestamps and everything if you don't want to be spoiled on Le Samurai. Okay, so Le Samurai. Spoilers on. So that ending. Mm-hmm. First of all, I really like the way that the movie re uh, recontextualizes or re uh, reshows um, or revisits. Um, several things throughout that happen throughout the movie. So like the license plate switch thing and how that has kind of a different context from like how I read it when he's just like, just so you know, this is the last time, um, that kind of felt like to me and, and maybe this could have been a misread of it, but to me that felt like it was showing that when we see that, when we see the first, uh, iteration of that the first version of that it's a it seems like just a cool um hitman kind of thing yeah and like a well-oiled machine like he has the he has these things and everything yeah and then when we see him and the guy says like hey you know not no more of this shit i'm not doing this anymore the way that i read that was that it was maybe the movie trying to communicate to us that he is not as he does not have this base of operations or he doesn't have this. He's, he's almost just like a regular guy who happens to just kill people for money. Uh-huh. Um, and that he doesn't have this well-oiled machine of, of hitman assets and everything. Yeah. Um, but then I, I also was wondering if maybe that's to show that since he was arrested, he's now like, he, he doesn't he, want to yeah, risk the he's being out there. Yeah, he's blackballed by the hitman um, union, right? Um, so I don't know. How did you? What did you make of that? Yeah, um, I to be honest, I kind of spaced that line, mm-hmm. um, but I I do have thoughts on like the the very end. So, oh yeah, me too. Me yeah. too. Um, I do have one more thing I'm going to bring up before we get to the very end. Okay. Um, just a, just an observation that I, I love this in the same way that the license plate thing is kind of recontextualized in that second scene later in the movie. Um, the keys in the car. Yeah. Just love it. Love <laughs> it. Like in that opening scene, it just feels like, okay, this is just his, his technique. He's like, he's doing this. 
nervous glance thing, but it's like, it's also like, he's just operating. This is what he does. Right. And then when he's getting away and he's doing the same thing, it's like, now we know like, like this is it. The pressure is on and there's like little minute changes in his performance and his, his, his look and demeanor in that, that I was just like, this is, (laughs) this is amazing. This is really good. This is smart. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I I was really I mean the the giant ring of keys is mm-hmm. I mean this film is very visually focused I guess mm-hmm. and that is that is definitely one of the the visuals that you think of when you think of this yeah, movie absolutely yeah um yeah and also before we get to the end the procedure aspect of it and the police procedure and everything um the way that they had the the map and the transponder things mm-hmm. I thought that was just really clever just really clever detective story work mm-hmm. um and I just I thought that was really cool It's funny you think of this genre of movie and you think it like obviously nowadays it's very technology focused mm-hmm. and you don't really think that like how can you pull off something like this back in a time when the technology right. wasn't as developed mm-hmm. and he he still finds a way to pull it off i mean yeah. the the uh the bug that the police plant in his <laughs> apartment is kind of comical mm-hmm. but um <laughs> that was good yeah um, I, I also kind of thought that you would be taken by that scene because I, I figured you would probably be training your cat to, uh, <laughs> alert you whenever yes. bad guys have infiltrated your apartment. <laughs> I'm working on it. I am working <laughs> on it. Um, yeah. <laughs> to tip you off without any, you know, without making it too yes. obvious. Well, the funny thing about that is that the only way that she tips me off that there's anything amiss, like if I... If I uh, put in a work order for maintenance to come in and do something and they do that while I'm at work because I'm like, you know, I have a cat, she'll hide. Yeah. Um, when I come home, she will still be hiding like under the bed. Yeah. And she'll be freaked out until. So that that clues me in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You guys have that bond. Just like Just like Jeff and his bird. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> something about, uh, regarding the technology, this is how... I don't know. This is this is something else, but this is this is how inundated with like the modern age I am, I think. But there are two scenes where um a police officer is communicating with their captain in the car with a with a handheld like a phone. Yeah. Like a car phone. And like when that when those scenes happen, I didn't even bat an eye. I was just like, <laughs> wait. Like like after a minute I was like Huh. Okay. Like my brain just, just connected that. Like it, like it's not anything that's out of the ordinary or anything that's strange for the time. I don't know how common car phones were in 1967, but, um, like I just, my brain interpreted it as like, oh yeah, you know, he's, he's, (laughs) he's returning a text. Yeah. Um, so yeah. France Um, was ahead of the curve. Yes. Oh yes. So that ending, uh, let's talk about it. How did you feel about the, the, final showdown or final scene with, with Jeff and the pianist in the, yeah. Um, you know, on a surface level, I think it works. And, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe when I watch it again, 
uh, I'll feel better about it. But I, at least this time, I was, I mean, it. I think it's a fitting end. I think it ends uh, Jeff's, like, arc mm-hmm. nicely and neatly. Um, but I feel like, like, they, they cut to when he's in the car, he, he's got the loaded gun or maybe it was before he gets in the car, but at one point Mm -hmm. it shows deliberately the gun that is loaded. And then at the very end, the gun is not loaded at all. So they're implying he goes in there planning on dying. Mm -hmm. Um, which implies that he is like fed up with this lifestyle and these people are going to get him sooner or later. So, uh, hmm. what's the point? And so that all tracks and works fine on the surface level, but I just felt like it could have been built up a little bit better. Like his frustrations yeah. with the mob or his, desire to not necessarily live a different life, but I don't know, just anything really, it it could have been built up a little bit better. I, I definitely see where you're coming from with that for sure. Um, I think I was so wrapped up in the samurai angle of it. <laughs> um, because, um, I feel like that was because the movie opens with this text from the Bushido, which is the book of the samurai, mm-hmm. which also it, the text that's on the screen isn't from that. It's just something that the, that Melville wrote. Right. But, um, what I, what I took it to mean, like the, that ending scene where he's gunned down and killed, um, when pointing the gun with no, with no ammo, um, Really interesting that we picked these two movies. Yeah. <laughs> but um what I what I took that to be was a, a kind of closing of the arc throughout the entire movie. And in that it was and again I'm gonna uh, like I'm I'm hang on, let me check and see. Harakiri. <laughs> Him performing Harakiri um which is the ritual suicide by disembowelment uh, practiced by the Japanese samurai or formally decreed by a court in lieu of the death penalty. Um, that's what I kind of felt like the movie was going toward. And I kind of felt like even if it didn't ramp up to that point or if it didn't, if it didn't seed that point enough, if maybe this is something that I'm putting into the movie that isn't necessarily there, I do feel like that it tracks if you interpret it that way, because this is a man who has gone through f- <laughs> um, facing two separate factions, the, <laughs> his employers and the police. Right. And working against them and, and trying to get out of this hole that he's found himself in or out of this corner. And to an extent, if he is someone who, if you look at the movie abstractly or uh, like in, in its kind of all-encompassing view – if he is a hitman who adheres to the the Bushido code and, and the Bushido and, and the way of the samurai and everything, then naturally him him doing something him him in his line of work, if he applies the samurai principles to that line of work, him making such an error that costs his safety and everything and puts him at such a risk 
then him sacrificing himself to die is him performing Harry <laughs> and um dying as, as a result of just fucking up um his his line of work okay and that's something that that's what i took from it it maybe that's me projecting um because i watched this immediately after watching yojimbo and i was all <laughs> in that samurai mindset so uh-huh. i don't know how do you feel about that do you do you think i'm wrong or just completely uh do you think i'm right or completely no out? i no. i think that makes sense i think it would be interesting to uh a good podcaster would have done his research and uh, tried to uh, see if see what uh, Melville had said about uh, like any kind of ties between this and the samurai or the samurai code. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it is fairly explicit. Uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, so there had to have. I mean, it's it's not really all that far fetched. So yeah. maybe um, there's something there. Sure. Um, yeah, we'll report back to you guys. Yes, yes, we will. Um, okay. Yeah. So I guess that's our review of La Samurai. Um. Yeah. Should we go ahead and talk about our picks for next time? I'm ready. Okay. So. Do you want to go first? Because I haven't picked mine yet. <laughs> yeah, sure, I can. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, uh, as previously mentioned, um, I bought the Agnes Varda box set from Criterion uh, late, late last year. Mm-hmm. And I'm going through them this year, or at least that's the plan. Um, she has surprisingly only one film on this list oh and that is 1962's cleo from five to seven so we're gonna ride the the wave the french new wave um stay in france and do uh cleo from five to seven sweet okay which is uh available to stream on hbo and canopy sweet I feel okay. like all of our movies are either streaming on one of those two yeah. or both or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, nice. And do you want to read the plot summary of Cleo from 5 to 7? Yes. Um, a spoiled and beautiful young pop singer wanders across Paris while awaiting the results of a medical test that may show she has cancer. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Man, I mean, okay, that that sounds. I'm excited for that because I've never watched any of her movies, uh-huh. but I had this idea, like I had this this pick that I just picked right now. But he, hearing that makes me think that I should push a Kurosawa movie. <laughs> um, Everything goes back to Kurosawa, it doesn't it? Does, and I just think. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, my pick is, and I'm excited for this because I haven't watched this in many years, but it is 1952's Ikiru by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, The plot summary is, Kanje Watanabe is a middle-aged man who has worked in the same monotonous bureaucratic position for decades. Learning he has cancer, he starts to look (laughs) for the meaning of his life. Um, Yes, so Ikiru is... Available to stream on HBO Max and I would assume Canopy. 
and yeah, mm-hmm. Canopy and Criterion Channel. Awesome. Yes. So I feel like we're gonna have a pretty heavy um, um, episode for for this, but I pro I'm not gonna do Kurosawa every time. <laughs> I could. You very well could. Yeah. Maybe yeah, I for should. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's Ikiru. Um, and Cleo from five to seven. Uh, what year was Cleo from five to seven? 1962. 62. All right, cool. Well, we and will. The answer to your question is yes, you can borrow the box set oh, nice. to watch it if you want. <laughs> Maybe. I think it's... since it's available to stream, I think I'll be all set. <laughs> it is a very good box set for anyone yeah. that is out there, uh, thinking about getting it. It's very nice. cool. Very nice. Um, all right. Well, that's our assignments. Uh, do you want to do a potpourri section or should we call it a night? Do you have anything for potpourri? I'm sure I do. Okay. I probably do. Let's do a lightning round potpourri, just one each. Um, I want to mention going into potpourri. Uh, potpourri is a section of the podcast where we talk about uh, things we're looking forward to, things we've watched, things we're whatever. Um, uh, everything we like as long as it smells good. Uh, whatever we want, as long as it smells good. And I will get us kicked off, and then you can round us out if you want. Yeah. Okay. So, the, just the other night, I rewatched Dazed and Confused. And I was super bummed because Dazed and Confused is not on Ebert's Great Movies list, um, because that was definitely going to be my pick. Um, and it's weird, because I don't think American Graffiti is either. Um, and I wanted to, like, I wanted to do, pick, like, one of the, like, 119 movies coming of age movies but i rewatched days infused it's amazing um i I love it it has um uh, the reason i rewatched it was because i just listened to the audiobook for uh for all right all right all right the (laughs) uh oral history of uh richard linklater's days and confused by melissa mares um and so, Dazed and Confused is is amazing. It's iconic. Have you? How do you feel about Dazed and Confused? It's been a long time since I've seen it. Okay, but I remember liking it. Nice. I mean, okay. it was yeah. It's it's been a while. That's mm-hmm. all I'll say. Okay. Um, I I love it. It's weird because it's it falls under that one nineteen movie that I love so much. So, and I've I've made my top 25 favorite movies of all time list. And number 25 is super bad, which is basically a kind of, it's in that milieu, but in for the two thousands generation, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in the next 25 that I have, I have, um, can't hardly wait, which is kind of the nineties era of that same story. Weirdly enough, days and confused is not in my, my, my perspective, top 50 or anything. Not that I put too much credence on that or anything, but I just, I, I do love it. It's amazing. And this book uh, by Melissa Mayers is a really interesting oral history of it that they, she talks to so many people that were involved in it from the production and the cast. And it's just, it's amazing because Richard Linklater made Dazed and Confused after he, it was his, it was a studio movie after he kind of came on the scene with Slackers, which I never saw. Right. And so he was given like a budget and studio backing and everything. And like the stories that they go into about the production and about what was going on behind the scenes is it's nothing too like gratuitous or like scandalous or anything, 
but it's so entertaining. You can really tell how charmed and how like close knit they were, which is kind of, you know, an expected kind of thing. But I will say there is one chapter that is all about the actor who played Pickford in the movie. Who, okay. uh, and this isn't indicative of the entire book, but, uh, that dude was a freaking monster. Like he was <laughs> like, he, like I'll share like a couple of anecdotes from it and then leave you to, to read the book. But, uh, like he came on set saying repeatedly that he was going to be the next Brando. This was his first movie. Um, and his agent like was a huge dick talking about how he's going to be the next Brando as well. Um, he would keep any time he was in, um, a scene, he would try to basically steal focus from whoever was the focal character in the scene. Um, and the, the final kind of anecdote for, for that is that he, um, in the foot, on the football field scene at the end of the movie, where uh Matthew McConaughey as Wooderson is is there. Um he was not supposed to be there originally. It was originally going to be Pickford, but they, they he basically they basically fired him from the movie. <laughs> and so they're like, "Well, Wooderson can be in there. That's fine." Nice. Um so yeah, but it's a really cool really cool book, really good read, and uh I recommend it. And I recommend checking out Days and Confused again if you haven't already or if you need to revisit it. It's a, it's a, it's a good one. I really like it. Nice. Um, so Ben, any well, thoughts on that? And uh, yeah. yeah, real quick, it's funny that you mentioned um, not only being surprised that Days and Confused is not on the Ebert list, but just one night kind of rom coms mm. or one night uh, movies. Yeah. Um, because I watched uh, Before Sunrise recently. I was so bummed that that's not on the list either. <laughs> I know. And and I forget if we have talked about the Mandela effect and this list, but mm. I could have sworn that this movie was on the list. Me too. Or at least one of them. Like listening to that book, I was like, I was ready to be like, hey, let me pitch something for the next Ebert, <laughs> Ebert episode instead of picking two. Let's just do the before trilogy because I've right. never seen them. Right. Um, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Before Sunrise is amazing. Mm. Um, check it out because it's on that one and the next one before sunset mm. are on HBO Max and they're leaving in the end of January. Oh, so nice. Well, check them nice, out while you can. Nice. Um, yeah. Okay. Sweet. So you recommend it? Yes. Nice. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think you'd like it. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah, I, I don't really have much more to say on Daisy and Confused. It's a classic. Yeah, um, me too. And I agree. I, I'm not a classic. I mean, <laughs> I agree. I need to uh, watch it again. Yeah, nice. Um, My pick, let's see. I could go one of two directions with this, and one of them, I'm sure, would be very obnoxious. Okay. <laughs> so. I do want to say, while you're picking between the two, we postponed recording. To, we we moved it a day. Uh-huh. And, like, I, when, when I looked on Letterboxd last night, because we were originally supposed to record last night, um, I saw that you logged that you saw Grown Ups. Yep. And I just, like, I wanted, I was going to comment on it and just be like, 
I'm so sorry that I bailed on recording tonight, <laughs> and this was what your night ended up being. <sighs> yeah, yeah, well, it was going to happen sooner or later. Yeah, yeah. MidwestFilmJournal.com. Right. Um, <laughs> Links in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Fuck it. I'm going to do it. Let's talk <laughs> Tenet. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, now, what you've done here is you have you have thrown... A temporal pincer move yep. on me. Yep. And uh, yeah, Matt's, let's. Matt's let's wearing talk red. About it. I'm wearing blue. Yes. <laughs> oh, so how did you feel about Tenet? <laughs> you know, uh, in my review that I wrote for ObsessiveViewer.com, mm. um, I was annoyed by it. I would say, and seeing it again, I was much less annoyed. Uh, and I cannot, I don't think I can accurately explain why. I think I have just come to the realization that it's all just silly nonsense and mm. it's just fucking cool action scenes. <laughs> and don't even try to think about what is happening or why it's happening. Yeah, and I cannot get past that. <laughs> I, I just can't. I've only seen it the one time uh-huh. while I was like while I was symptomatic for COVID and had a fever and everything. <laughs> the, the way that Christopher Nolan intended for people to see. Yes. It. And th- that was my, that was my kind of go-to thing. I posted this on letterbox, but like it's, it's amazing to me that I did not see tenant in theaters specifically because I was afraid of getting COVID. Like I did not want to catch COVID by seeing fucking tenant in a theater. Um, and I didn't see it in the drive-in because I didn't want to see it with a compromised audio through uh, through uh, car speakers and everything. And so naturally, I fucking watch it at home on my <laughs> TV speakers while I'm suffering from COVID. Um, so Double yeah. jokes on you. I mean, I will say I saw it at the drive-in and yes, the audio was terrible, but mm-hmm. it wasn't because of the drive-in. Yeah. Oh, my God. I... <laughs> yeah yep it oh fuck i yeah yep i'm gonna have some very strong words but i, I don't want to overstep because it's your potpourri section you know so, yeah <laughs> all of the things that i said in my review on obsessiveviewer.com nice. are still accurate and i still feel that way i still feel like tenet was kind of a missed opportunity but almost like you cannot tell that story and make it make sense. Um, there is no one or two changes that you can make that would make it make sense or make it less frustrating. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's really just best just to just sit back. And it just looks amazing. Mm. Um, the action scenes are amazing. Uh, I this will blow your mind. Hmm. Um, I was listening You're to right now. Yes, <laughs> this this segment of the podcast is going to be played backwards. Right. Um, <laughs> I uh, heard this on the blank Pe- blank check podcast, mm-hmm. and they said that. Tenet has like 280 shots that were done with CGI, Hmm. which sounds like a lot. But then they said 
Dunkirk has like 400 something. So this is one of the least, or this is one of the most practical films Mm -hmm. of Christopher Nolan's uh, filmography. And it just, it just even knowing that just blows my mind even more. Like how did they, how did they get these shots? How did they do it? Um, Even something simple like the fight scenes, which one of them is played forwards and backwards. Mm -hmm. Um, it just blows my mind how they how they did it. I I visually it's it is very impressive. Um mm. the everything from the from the scope of the action, like the action, the big set piece at the end of the movie is visually just it's very unique and very remarkable. However, <laughs> to your point about <laughs> um there's no use in trying to make sense of the plot or anything. Uh-huh. There's no there's no changes that can be made to make it make sense like my immediate re- i've i had such a like visceral reaction to this movie like in in a negative way that my reaction was then he shouldn't have made the fucking movie <laughs> like he should not have made the movie if you have your protagonist uh being introduced to the concept of inverted objects by a character who says don't think about it too hard mm-hmm. that is a failure an <laughs> abject failure of screenwriting and like i just i i couldn't i am someone who when i was a snobby early 20s teenager maybe i don't know uh 2010 i don't know whenever uh how old was i in 2010 86 96 2006 20 or 24 yeah i was like 20 24 um so math is not good um when i was like a douchey 24 year old or 23 year old um in 2010 when people were like um oh oh inception is too confusing i can't make sense of it or anything i was just like okay it's not that hard half the like 80 percent of the dialogue is exposition like it is explaining to the audience what it is and and this is inception like it, it makes sense with tenant that's the same principle. Like most of the dialogue is exposition and it is handholding and it is telling us what's going on. But the core concept of it, the, the kind of big flashy thing that they do, the whole concept of inverting time or whatever, like I, like I cannot grasp (laughs) what, what that is. Like it is not built into the movie. Like you think, okay, we're going to, uh, uh, you talking about dreams? Um, and we got to go deeper like that <laughs> stuff in inception. That makes sense. Like, okay, they're in dreams. Yeah. Like fine. But this is like, what, like what, the, I don't know what the fuck is going on. And then at one point they're on a boat and then she tries to kill someone. And it's, I, and then suddenly they're, uh, he's freezing. T- time travel movies are inherently, they will make your head explode. And then doing a time travel movie in this way, yeah, it it will make your head explode forwards and backwards. Um, (laughs) And when it explodes backwards, it'll freeze. Yeah, apparently, Uh, yeah. um, Because that makes fucking sense. Yeah, I mean, Um, just just even try to... (laughs) think for a minute about the mechanics of how the inversion works and your head will explode. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I cannot defend that part. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I just, I don't know. I think that the action scenes are awesome. I think Robert Pattinson is awesome. He's he's really good at it. Uh, yeah. I think John David Washington is awesome, despite mm-hmm. you know not Same. really being a character. Mm-hmm. Um, that and yeah, and that that I think is my most frustrating thing about it. Like I can forgive, I can suspend my disbelief with a wacky ass premise that makes no goddamn sense. And just, just, just so I say this, I am an avid fan of the time travel movie. Yeah. And I say this with pride. I am bought hook, line and sinker into just about every time travel premise I've ever seen. Um, I don't understand primer. That's just about the only one that I'm like, I can't find what, like mm-hmm. this is too too much until tenet um <laughs> but my problem is that like i can forgive that i can i can accept that i can i can suspend my disbelief but the only characters in this movie that are remotely interesting or given any kind of dimension is elizabeth debicki and kenneth branagh yeah and it's like this I tweeted this and I was I was really proud of this but I'm going to I'm going to look it up real quick because uh, cuz like even that like okay I've I've made no um I have made no secret my qualms with uh Interstellar like yeah. I you know it's whatever I haven't revisited it I probably should but it's not really that high on my to-do list um, but my tweet was, okay, this is the tweet. It's a, it's kind of a lengthy one, so bear with me. For context, in Tenet, there's a scene where Kenneth Branagh is, is being very violent toward Elizabeth Debicki, and he says, he threatens to murder her and says, if I can't have you, no one can. Yeah. And so, this is my tweet, and then I... I'll I'll stop bashing this movie um, <laughs> until the next episode. From Christopher Nolan, whose interstellar script brought you maybe love is science, lol, idk, comes Tenet with the dramatic brilliance of if I can't have you, no one can. <laughs> um, and then it's been two weeks since I saw Tenet, and I'm honestly still amazed that Nolan had Kenneth Branagh, a classically trained actor who has starred in and directed the work of Shakespeare, both on stage and screen, play a villain who actually says the line, if I can't have you, no one can. <laughs> if I can't have you, no one can. God, it's not just a mediocre and cliched villain line. It's hacky writing from someone who's hoping a high concept plot will distract the viewer from the lackluster or honestly almost lacking entire entirely character development it's insane to me if i can't have you no one can (laughs) so anyway um rebuttal (laughs) matt just dropped the mic and walked away i I did (laughs) uh no i i uh no further questions your honor (laughs) um i yeah Kenneth Branagh is doing something else in this movie. And- he takes it to 11 <laughs> and no one even knows where the dial is in this fucking yeah. movie for that. Yeah. Uh, I, it's, it's insane mm-hmm. out of, out of all of the insane things in this movie. That is one of the more insane things. And yeah. 
we will be here all night. Uh, I know. So yeah. I did this to myself, but uh, <laughs> it was worth it. We we, we had will, to talk tenant yeah, at some point. So for context, I, we're actually recording this before we record our year in review episode, and I know that one. I know that. I will say that one of the co-hosts at least has Tenet on their top ten. Ooh, and spoiler! Yes, and or not spoiler teaser. Right. I'll just say I'm glad that I got this off my chest here <laughs> rather than in that episode, which I will probably rant about that. So I'm sure you have know. more to say. Yeah, yeah. Whoever he <laughs> or she is, I back them up. Nice, nice. Oh, all right. Shall we close out this episode of The Obsessive Viewer? Um, I feel like I had, might have had one. I don't ah. think I did. Okay. No. Um, Do you want to go into this weird, uh, like, rotating thing and then come out backwards? Yes. Because that makes fucking sense. <laughs> um, also, just, I don't, like, the bullet didn't go in. Uh, didn't uh, go into it because you didn't fire it or something like. Oh, I know what I was doing. It. I just. I yes. don't get it. Anyway. No, that none of that makes no. sense. The later you'll go on in the movie. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, and none of this really has any bearing on anything, but the I saw Rise of Skywalker uh, in IMAX at the State Museum when oh, it came yeah. out. And the opening scene of Tenet was the trailer that they played. The nice. opening scene in the opera house. I will say which, that sequence is really well done. Yes. What I could hear of it. Um, <laughs> because also, I don't understand why anyone would fucking blow out the soundtrack on the fucking movie. Hey, that soundtrack rules. The, the I, actual soundtrack, like the musical score is fantastic. Yeah. But the actual sound mixing is like... Oh, yeah. I don't know why the fuck Christopher Nolan hates his audience's hearing. <laughs> I really don't. It Like, people said that about, like, I don't know, Dark Knight Rises. Mm. And I I can defend the sound sound design and sound mixing in that movie. Yeah, but I had no problem with that one. Not this movie. Yeah. Uh, no. There's, yeah. you almost have to watch it with subtitles on. Yeah. Ugh. But, yeah, the, the soundtrack rules. I mm. have listened to it just... While at work to mm. just amping myself up while nice. I'm filing papers and shit. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, that's all. I love Ludwig Gorenson who does the, who does the soundtrack for it. Um, I, I have this weird like point of pride over him in his career. Cause like he's, he's blown up. He's huge hmm. now, but I like, I was a fan. I, I was a fan of him before he was cool. No, um, <laughs> I like uh, his work on uh, Tenant, and I really liked the Mandalorian score that he does. Okay, but my affection for his work goes back to season one of Community. Oh, he did the music for that, and like there are like some there's some music drops throughout the first season and throughout throughout the whole series really that just works for me. Like I just really like it elevates the sitcom for me, and I love that show. So nice, yeah. So he's good. Also, he gets a shout-out in a Childish Gambino song. How about um, that? Yeah. So, all right. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode of The Obsessive Viewer. Uh, ben, I know you need to check the lottery numbers. And um, Yes, I'm a multimillionaire at this point. Nice. Patreon.com slash Obsessive Viewer. <laughs> um, also, IRS.gov because the fucking stimulus check. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> 
Um, yeah. So, any parting thoughts for the Trump administration? Ugh. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> let it be done. Yep. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, on to better things. So, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, next time, I don't know what we're doing, but, uh, but yeah, oh, we might do, um, we might do something. We'll see. Year in review? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that'll come after... This will come after that, because I'm okay. releasing this after that. So. Okay. By the way, this is going to come out, like, next week. So, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you guys so much for listening. Check out patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. I'll Thank you. Yep. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Very highly of it. And also, um, Ken Quapis was the director of the pilot episode of The Office and several other episodes of The Office. Wow. And so, yeah. So, he was he was on Office Ladies Pod like months ago promoting this book and uh, they spoke highly of it and like listening to it, I was like, this is really like really good, insightful stuff at the, about the craft of, of directing and about just the kind of um, the skill of management in a way, like overseeing and supervising a large production. And something that I found really interesting and something that resonated with me was the way that he talks about like, Something, something as simple as not simple, but as something as integral to his craft as setting up a shot or or setting up like where a, where to frame a shot and everything, or how to frame a certain shot from a script and everything, and how to give notes to communicate that. Like the way that he talked about it, I was just like, this this is really insightful, and it actually gives me a lot to think about when like in terms of watching a movie with a critical eye. Because he, like, has this just easy, not easy going way, but, like, this just fluid way of just breaking down, like, what a scene means and what needs to be communicated. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I am really, like, this is this is really insightful. I really liked it. So, nice. Yeah. And what's the book called again? It's called, But What I Really Want to Do is Direct okay. by Ken Quapis. Nice. Highly recommend. Okay. Yeah. The Obsessive Viewer podcast is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV archive. You can also like our Facebook page and join the OV Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. And follow us on Twitter at Obsessive Viewer and at Obsessive Tiny. And follow our recurring co-hosts at I am Mike White, that's me, at R.A. Feckus and at Burger underscore Lurker. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. 
For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com, T-E-E, public.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. The theme music for The Obsessive Viewer comes courtesy of the band Loudlike from their EP, Mistakes We Must Make. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Kitty!